walk on our own. You carry us on eagle's wings. You lift us up. And Lord, we're talking about those seasons and those times when but for that we wouldn't even make it through. So would you come and minister life in our midst and give us encouragement from your spirit to ours. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we talked about Psalm 128 and it's a psalm that describes those times when faith is kind of clicking on all cylinders. The, the benefits of God, they're right there in front of you. You can touch them, you can taste them, you can feel them, you can easily point to them. This week we're looking at the very next psalm, Psalm 129, but this one I'm calling faith when it doesn't make sense. Because this one has a very, very different tone and I'm going to get into the idea by telling you a story. September 25th, 2010, I'm out for my usual bike ride. I've been riding for about six years. It's a hot Saturday afternoon, and from my house to ride, you start out going up Edgewood to get to Kenyatta and all the pretty biking areas, and you finish by coming down Edgewood to get home. And Edgewood Road, if you don't know, it's a road with almost no access from the sides, no driveways, no streets, big wide bike lanes, so bikers tend to let it run pretty good down the hill. And I was doing that. I was going 45 at the bottom of the hill, and there's one road that does come in from the county park. And there's a car there that stopped and looks just like 10, 20,000 car, other cars I've seen biking there. It's my right of way and they're looking both ways and so everything looks normal. But the very last second, she starts pulling out very slowly, deliberately, because she just plain didn't see me. And you can, you can imagine that happening. If you're looking for four-wheeled things and here comes a two-wheeled thing and you're just not thinking about it. But anyway, I, the police report says I slammed on my brakes, tried to get around the front, couldn't because she kept coming, then tried to get around the back. Anyway, teed into the side of the car, broke my bike in half, flipped up over, landed on my head and my neck and my shoulder. I woke up in the ambulance thinking I'd been having a dream about having a bike wreck and got to the trauma room and they said, well, we've got good news and bad news. The uh, good news is your brain's not bleeding. The bad news is you've broken your neck in two places and sustained a pretty significant trauma to your brain. Which, you know, I wiggle my toes and my hands and I'm like, I think I can get through this. And, you know, I was talking to another friend of mine. This is kind of the way guys love each other and telling him all these things that were broken here, there, and everywhere. And he's like, well, Ben, where I grew up, we had a cow with all that. We'd just put them down. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's, uh, I understand. I understand. But I need to back up. Seven years earlier, my wife and I were on staff at Menlo Park Prez, which is a large church down the road. Had a good job by pastor standards. We were being well paid, and we felt this call from God to plant a church. And so seven years earlier, we had gotten up on the platform in front of everybody with a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a belly out to here with our third, saying, you know, I think we know what God wants us to do when we grow up. He wants us to plant this church. And so we would kind of got off this big stable ocean liner and gotten into a little leaky rowboat called New Hope that we started from scratch and thought we'd be doing that for the rest of our lives. And as I got out of the hospital, I started realizing my head's not working like it did before. So I started realizing in terms of capability, about as intelligent as I was before, in terms of capacity, the number of hours of concentration I could do, radically different. And I could concentrate at first for maybe a couple hours, then maybe three, and then I'd go into this migraine cycle. Never had a headache in my life. 
but I'd go into this migraine cycle and it just put a cap on what I could do. And I went back to the, this little church and did my best. But if you think of the church as needing an eight-cylinder engine to keep it going, we were in a season in, in our church where it needed me to function with 12 cylinders and I really had two or three. And after about six months, my health started going backwards because I was running a lot more current through the CPU than was legal for my health. And we eventually had to close the church. So it was what I thought I'd be doing the rest of my life. It's kind of like your baby, in a sense, when you start it from scratch. And I realized not only we were closing that, but I looked back up the road and I looked at every job I'd ever had as a pastor and I said, I couldn't do any of those right now. So I feel like I'm kind of painted into a corner and we're like, God, did you call us to do this or not? Or we left a lot to do this. Did we blow it? Were you not paying attention? What, what's happening? You know, I want to serve you with my life, and now I don't really know how I can do it. What do you do when you're following God the best you know how, and life kind of explodes or implodes or goes sideways? That's what we're talking about today. If you live long enough, you will have those seasons. If you haven't had them, uh, they probably are coming. Faith doesn't make sense because what you are experiencing present tense doesn't match what you know of God. You've experienced Him delivering you from things. You've seen Him deliver other people, but in your life it's not happening, at least not right now. And you wrestle and you struggle and we try to get through those things. I, for you it may be something like a relationship you thought you'd last that would last forever. Didn't. Or a relationship that is going to last is really, really hard. Or your career goes sideways or your finances do or there's pain in your family that you can't fix and you just Lord how am I going to keep going or you get that diagnosis that's life threatening or maybe it's not life threatening it's just chronic it's going to be there forever and you're trying to carry that and I am so glad that since life includes these things that God included in his word Psalm 129 and many other psalms like it and many other teachings and parables that say this type of season will come and here's some things that help us get through it. I can't tie it up with a nice neat bow and explain everything. I can just point to truths in God that help us get through these seasons. So let me read those first three verses again. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Let Israel say, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth, but they have not gained victory over me. Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long. So describing oppression and hardship brought on by a they. Don't know who they is, but it's most likely the nations surrounding Israel that were always giving them trouble, making it hard for them to follow God. At first, when you read it, it sounds like a single person reflecting on their life. It goes, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth. But that's actually not the case because it says, let Israel say. So they're marching to Jerusalem to worship and it says, everybody say this. They have long oppressed me from my youth. This is universal. Everybody was to learn to say this. Not only was it universal, but it also shows us that when these times come, God not only permits us to say it to him, it commands us to lift these things up to God. It commands us to let Israel say, talk about it, get it out, let God hear what you're going through. 
I had a friend when I was growing up named Hank Worsham, and he taught Sunday school in the class that I was in when I was a young, young kid. And his wife went in for some relatively minor surgery, but had some kind of a reaction to the anesthesia. And she went on life support with no discernible brain activity, and they're just... So it was a huge tragedy. And Hank's out in the hallway of the hospital drinking a Coke, and the chaplain comes up and says, Hank, do you know it's okay to get mad at God? And Hank says, no, it's not. He said, Hank, have you ever read the Psalms? Have you ever read how these people would vent what was going on in their hearts, and God allowed it, even commands it? He said, God can handle us getting mad at him. What is harder for him to handle is when we clam up and don't talk to him at all. And Hank took his Coke bottle and he threw it down the hall and it smashed all over the wall, but it began a dialogue. And he taught my Sunday school class again after going through this incredibly painful thing. Let Israel say, how many of you have ever been around a child that gets absolutely hysterical? They just have completely lost it. And you just pick them up and you hold them to your chest and they're crying and they're kicking and they're screaming and they're doing all of this and you just hold them until they're limp in your arms. And just like, baby, you wouldn't understand. But I'm with you. I'm here. I think God does that with us a lot. He doesn't necessarily say this is why this has happened, but he just holds us and he holds us because it's universal. Verse 4 says this, But the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. The psalmist doesn't understand why this stuff has happened, but he has this gritty faith in the middle of it. And almost all of these psalms and other parts of the Bible where God's people vent to God, they tell him honestly, this is what's going on, this is too much for me, they also in this gritty way say, yet I still believe. God will come through. It's done with sweat on their brow and their teeth are gritted. It's hard, but they say, I still believe. With very few exceptions, that's true in almost all of these psalms. In John 6, I love this passage where a bunch of Jesus' disciples, not just the twelve, a big gaggle of them come up to him and he starts teaching and he says, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And the majority of them just walk away. I don't understand what he's talking about. I mean, he's talked about a lot of good stuff, but now it sounds like he wants us to be cannibals. So, you know, they don't understand he's talking about communion. And then he looks to the twelve and he says, What about you? Are you going to leave too? And they say, Lord, where would we go? You're the only one who has the words of eternal life. And they stay. And what's interesting to me is about that is that the twelve who stayed didn't understand what he was teaching any more than the multitude that left. They were just willing to stay when they didn't understand. And there's a lot of times in life where we have to do that. Jesus, I don't understand what you're doing. I'm not even sure I like it. But I'm going to stay with you because you're the only one that has the words of eternal life, that gritty faith. I want to give you a little bit of a framework that has been helpful to me with times like this, it may be helpful to you. A friend of mine said that a lot of us start faith, start a journey of faith with, with what he called child faith. You know, Jesus said, unless you become like a little child, you don't enter my kingdom. But the child faith, I think of this story when Christy, my wife, worked in Washington. She shared Christ with this woman who came to faith. And as she was coming to faith, she would say, big guy in the sky, if you're really there, give me a parking spot in front of the Russell Senate office building. And boom! There it would be. 
Because God's showing her that he's real and that he's there. And a friend of ours says, if you want God to do something for you, get somebody who's been a Christian less than two years to pray for it. Because they're still in that period where God is just saying, hey, I'm real, I'm real, I'm real. The downside, if all we have is that, is that it becomes a little like magic. We think that if I follow Jesus, he will take away everything. Like a vending machine, anytime I ask, it's going to automatically come. Who wouldn't sign up for that deal? So he said we grow to what he called adolescent faith. In adolescent faith, we start to realize there are things that I can do that help my faith progress. I can read the Bible, and I feel closer to him. I can come to worship, and I feel closer. I can pray, join a small group, practice generosity, any of those staples. And you start to realize I am getting closer to God as I start to do the things that he's taught me to do. And it's to the good, but there is a weakness in it that it can become kind of like barter. God, if I do all this stuff for you, you better not let hardship come near my door. It's a swap. But about 20% of the time, my figure, that's not scientific, neither of those works. And stuff comes into our life that requires mature faith. And mature faith is rooted in trust. Lord, I don't understand I'm trying to do everything right. It still went wrong, but I'm not leaving. I'm going to hang on to you. But if you hold on to me, I'll hold on to you, and somehow you'll get me through. And that's a helpful way of understanding this to me. The only thing that, that I added to this that my friend taught is I think it's a little bit more like a wall where, like you're laying courses of brick, you need all the courses. When you become mature and you trust God, you don't stop praying for miracles like it's with the faith of a child. And you don't stop praying and doing the other things that help your faith grow. But our faith tops out pretty quickly if we don't learn that language of trust. When it doesn't make, sure, make sense, how do I stay with Jesus even then? So let me talk to you a little bit about letting the seasons when faith doesn't make sense do their work in you. Because there is work that happens in these seasons when faith doesn't make sense. Romans 5, 2 says this. Paul's just outlined all the wonderful things, kind of Psalm 128, that come to us when we follow Jesus. And he says, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We boast in all these wonderful things. Psalm 128, Psalm 129, very next verse. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There's a sense in which the clay of our lives becomes soft again in these hard, hard seasons where the Master can get in there and cast it as He will. He can reshape the clay because it becomes soft again. One of my teachers, he once said, these seasons are going to hurt no matter what. Don't compound the felony by not learning anything. If they're going to hurt, for heaven's sakes, let's let them do their work in us so that it's not just comes and goes and is only pain. So, first point I want to make is control gives way to releasing things to God. Control gives way to releasing things to God. Verse 5 through 9 in our, parable, in our 
psalm today. May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like the grass on the roof which withers before it can grow. A reaper cannot fill his hands with it, nor one who gathers fill his arms. May those who pass by not say to them, the blessing of the Lord be on you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Can you see the tense change? Tense, like English class. It moves to the tense where it's a wish. Lord, would you do these things that I cannot do? It's offering it over to God. God, I can't achieve any single one of these, but my control starts to give way to giving things over to God. That starts to happen in these seasons. It's not, a, it's not an accident that the first three steps of the 12 steps, which you go to when life's kind of falling all to pieces, replay this. It's step one, we admit we're powerless. I cannot manhandle this thing. It's beyond me. Step two, a power greater than ourselves can return us to sanity. And step three, we give it over to God. We give it over to God. And us modern day control freaks, we start having to say, you know, I can't control everything and I'm giving it to God. I shared with uh, you last week that my dad didn't believe in God when I was growing up. He became a Christian at age 76. He died at 78, but he became a Christian at 76. And he was a depression baby. And he fought in World War II. He was a Marine on, on Iwo Jima. And he was kind of the pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And when, he, when we asked him about his journey to faith, he said, a lot of what tenderized me was dealing with my wife, my mom's alcoholism. Because I could not beat this thing. It didn't matter what I do, did. I can't lift this. I can't change it. And that tenderized him so that the message of giving it over to God started to get traction. It hadn't before when he thought he could control it and, and bring the outcomes he wanted. So that's the first thing. Second thing is an earthbound view of reality starts to include heaven. An earthbound view of reality starts to, to include heaven. Several years ago, I, I was a missionary in Africa and I lived with a family that had uh, seven children Biggest mentor in my life is Kalini. He's the, he's the dad. He's a bishop in the church over there. Anyway, their, their oldest son, Christopher, got cancer. And he wound up dying on the operating table. In a, it's possible the cancer would have gotten him anyway, anyway, but he probably would not have died had the surgery been done here. Wouldn't have died then. But he passed away, and they had a, a memorial service six weeks later, and I flew over for it. And I was like, what in the world am I going to say? to his mother, to Frida. And I go after a 36-hour plane ride and I sit out on the front porch with her. Have, we're having coffee and she just turns to me and she says, Benny, this world is not our home. Never was. This is not our home. You know, my, my African brothers and sisters, they've got a leg up on this that we don't. We have enough stuff or we see enough stuff around us, we are almost fooled into believing we can make our heaven here. If we get enough of this, enough of that, enough insurance, enough of this, anti-aging cream, 50 is the new 40, just keep, keep going. My African brothers and sisters, they're never tempted to believe that. They're not tempted to believe they can make their heaven here. And their earthbound view of reality includes heaven very prominently. You ever made a tried to make a big uh, puzzle and you get towards the end and you realized a number of pieces have been lost. You know, the dog got it, the kids got it, it fell up under the 
the couch and you're super frustrated because you worked so long and you can't make, all, all the pieces aren't there. That's the way this world is. No matter how hard we work, all the pieces to make it complete, they're not on the board. And you've got to include the other side for a complete picture. And seasons like this, our earthbound view starts to include heaven. It starts to include it all. There was a tragedy uh, in San Carlos where I live a few years back. And a child died from an illness. And the Catholic priest at uh, St. Charles was set up preaching. And he said when he was a little boy around seven, he used to love to read with his grandfather. And he would get to sections where the content was a little bit over his head, a little too mature for him to understand. And to granddad, what is that? And he would say, son, I'm going to dog ear that page and let's come back to it when you get a little bit older. And he said, in life, God does that a lot of times with us. He just says, Ben, we're going to have to dog ear that page because you're not going to understand it until you get on the other side. And anybody who walks with the Lord for long enough you get to heaven with some dog-eared pages of life that never did make sense. And you just had to trust Him and just move on. Our earthbound view of reality starts to include heaven. And last thing, God is the master recycler. God is the recycler. Some things in life are so big that we just can't be the same on the other side of them. You know, there's that old oversimplistic saying, but, but it has truth in it. This one's so big, I'm either going to become bitter or I'm going to become better. But I can't be the same guy on the other side. And I think that's true about times like this because the clay is soft again. And God recycles these things. Sometimes he recycles them in the sense that it seems awful at the time. And later, you realize, wow, God actually did some stuff. Other times he recycles them in that you never ever in this life see the silver lining. But you become somebody that you weren't before. You don't spend the rest of your life shaking your fist at heaven and being a, a bitter, shriveled person. You become one of those people that everybody else is inspired by. Said, how in the world is their spirit still the way it is after all they've been through? I'm going to go back a few years now. So, church is closed, wrestling. I go up to the city to see this neuropsychologist who meets with Iraq and Afghani war veterans who've had closed-head brain trauma, professional athletes, and pastors who drive their bikes too fast. <laughs> and he said, Ben, how many hours of A game do you think you can play a week? This is a long time ago. I said, I think I can do 20 hours of, of really A-grade concentration before I tip over into the spiral. He said, Ben, if you spend those 20 on, in your sweet spot, that 20 will become 30. He said, if you spend those 20 in stuff that you've always been bad at, that 20 will become 10. Interestingly, he said, if you'd never had brain trauma and I just looked at your driver's license and I saw that you're over 50, I would tell you the same thing. Your energy is not growing from this point forward. And you need to start focusing it in. And me, who've always been a people pleaser all my life, when I go to a church and they say, well, what are you good at? I'm like, well, what do you want me to be good at? That's what I'll be good at. I started reflecting on what did God make when he made me? And that maybe he actually knows what he was doing. And I started realizing, you know, running the organization of the church, I have to work twice as hard to be half as good. 
But when I am sitting with people individually and in groups, and it's more face-to-face, that Holy Spirit whiteboard in the back of my head is going nuts with what may need to get added or mended or tweaked or repented of, or they may need to meet this person, and this can happen in their life. And I said, you know what? I don't have 60 hours to scatter out across is a reasonably intelligent person. There's a lot of things you're able to do. There's a much smaller list of things you were made to do. You were put on this planet to do those things. And you know, coming out of this season, thinking I, there was nothing I could do, some character that you may know named Gary Godini came and said, Ben, I need somebody who could work only about 30 hours working with people, helping shape their souls. You have any interest? And I'm like, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. So the Lord recycles. The Lord recycles. I don't have a why these times come. The Bible doesn't answer the why question. When God's people say why, his answer tended to be, I will be with you. And I don't have mosquito repellent to make them never come your way. If I did, I'd be using it myself. But I can make you three promises. God will be with you. God will lift up human angels around you in those times. And thirdly, God won't waste it. God won't waste it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a master craftsman and you weave even the worst, hardest chapters of our lives into a life that by the end of it we'd say, Lord, you've done all things well. Thank you for being wise. Thank you even for the hard times. And with Paul, we'd say we we boast in all that's wonderful when we taste your goodness. We boast even in the hard things because without them we would not be who you have made us to be. And so, Lord, we thank you for your goodness in, in hard times and in good ones. In Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Peninsula Covenant Church Podcast. We're located at 3560 Farm Hill Boulevard in Redwood City, California. You can reach us online at www.peninsulacovenant.com.